Hello and welcome. This is the Carbon Watchdog podcast. Hello and welcome to the Carbon Watchdog podcast. My name's Adam Hardy and uh, you can support Carbon Watchdog on Patreon. If you go to the website, you'll find a link in the top menu there. On this podcast today, I have Hugh White, who is a trustee of Open Carbon Data, which is a charity supporting promoting carbon footprinting. Hugh is a Canadian-born UK citizen, and he lives in Finsbury Park, North London, down the road from me. And one of the reasons I've got him on the podcast today is because his grandfather, Archibald White, lived in Calgary and was the proprietor of Wilson Coal and Coke, which had a very interesting history, which we will now discuss. And uh, so welcome, Hugh. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It's been some time since I've had an opportunity to bore people. <laughs> Well, I'm sure you won't because uh, you gave me, uh, you regaled me with some stories which uh, basically were, interest, were interesting to the point where I thought we had to get this down onto a podcast because there's just stuff about the old, the old ways of doing things before climate change was ever an issue, before anybody thought that there might be a problem. Well, actually, to tell you the truth, science and academia has known for a hell of a long time about climate change being a problem but the general population didn't have a clue and didn't know anything about the uh, the dangers of rising co2 right up until essentially until the un the un climate conferences began in the, in the 1990s so when you were in calgary uh growing up and a uh, teenager and a young man in the uh 50s and 60s, nobody would have nobody would have had the um, slightest objection to burning fossil fuels on a um, on any sort of global climate basis at all. There, there was probably a fair amount of smog and that kind of stuff going on. Well, at least there was in London. I've no idea about Calgary, but uh, the uh, the thing that stuck in my memory was this vision of your father. Uh, sorry, your grandfather, with his um, huge amount of coal and, and coke, which is essentially coal that they use for blast furnaces. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, in huge mounds, getting everything getting covered in coal dust and transporting it around the neighborhood to everybody, all and sundry, who needed basically to just keep warm in winter and keep the stoves going. And... Uh, it's essentially the foundation of the of, of the whole economy of the whole not just the not just the uh business and so on but also the domestic the, the whole domestic everybody was um burning coal just to keep themselves going keep yep. themselves warm keep themselves <coughs> keep the cookies going yeah uh, uh, just to put it into some sort of context that um Western Canada was settled really comparatively recently. Um, it had to wait until the railway was built. And the railway was finished in around 
1880s, 1890s. And it wasn't until then that there was really very many people living in Western Canada. Uh, but when the railway arrived, cities started growing. And I was born in Calgary, uh, in Alberta, which is within sight of the Rocky Mountains. It's in the foothills um, and on the edge of the prairies. And something that, unless you've actually been brought up in an area like the Canadian prairies, it's worth emphasizing just how very, very, very big it is. It is an impression of infinity. The, the, the horizon? Or well, the, the landscape? The mm. landscape that the prairies are, you could travel 600 miles from Calgary uh, going east and it would be exactly the same as it was just when you left Calgary. It's just a, a very a huge monotonous landscape. As you move towards the Rocky Mountains, lots of forest, uh, beautiful scenery, but it goes on endlessly. You have the feeling that the natural resources are quite literally infinite. And of course, the people who came into this part of the West, as opposed to the people who had it before in the early days, um, they, they just had the feeling that nothing they would, they would do or could do would damage it. Now that penny dropped, but in the early days, there was this feeling of infinite resources. And is my grandpa, sorry? Is that, do you think that's prevalent today as well? Because I often think that the, um, the reason why people in North America, Canada and the US probably don't buy into climate change is just because they have so much wilderness out there it's not like in London where you, your nose is up against the coal face the whole time, yep. to, uh, to use a bad metaphor, but you can't get away from the environmental impact that London has on the environment, obviously. So what you're saying yep. is in, in Calgary, or at least out, out and about around Calgary, you just felt like you're in this, this limitless wilderness where nature is never going to be affected by what yep. you do. Uh -huh. And it's a bit like the Mad Hatter's Tea Party. You know, if one place setting is finished, you just move on to the next. And that penny has now started to drop because of the thawing in the Antarctic, wildfires all over the place, climate change generally. So, you know, the message is getting across. But the starting point is very different from Europe because there really was this feeling that the resources were infinite. And they were there for capitalist entrepreneurs to make the best use of them and make lots and lots of money. <laughs> uh, so and did that impact you as a as a as a teenager, or is that just some sort of conclusion that you would have when you well, when you'd finished school and people were saying, Oh, well, Hugh, you know, what job are you gonna do? Is it sort of uh, was it pretty much well? The wilderness is out there for the taking, so it's something I'm gonna, or, or is it not quite that? I'm getting, I'm getting this impression of, of, uh, of these land 
what were they called a land rush no a land grab where not a land grab uh, where the where you could you could there would be could, a race and you just ride out your ride off on your horse and stake out your land and that would be yours yeah they did that in the states in canada they were much more organized about it uh, but when they built the railway uh, the railway actually opened an office in london i think it's somewhere near trafalgar square and um, they actually wanted people to move to the canadian prairies and so they offered them with the complicity of the canadian government for paying ten dollars which was more than it it is now but it wasn't a huge amount of money you could become a homesteader and you could you could get a patch of land that became yours and this is a really big patch of land you know one person would have a patch about the size of the whole finsbury park area um <laughs> oh, i and love that it became yours if you lived on it for three years and grew something and of course it was in the interest of the railways to have lots of farmers uh, producing meat and grain um, so oh, that right. there was freight for the railways because right. the, the railways had been built pre predominantly as a political move to unify Canada because when Canada was first formed the only way of getting from the east coast to the west coast by train was to go into the United States and take a rather convoluted uh, uh, journey to British Columbia. So the first thing the Canadian government did was set up the Canadian Pacific Railway Company, I think it was, um, and build a railway across Canada. And that took a lot of funding. It's a huge distance. And what, um, what year did they do that in? Presumably before you were born. I actually looked it up. It was well before me. Uh, the first locomotive uh, hit Alberta uh, in um, 1883. So it was really quite a long, long time. Uh, Canada was founded uh, in. Um, uh, 1867. Um, so it took a long time to unify it with the railway. And the railways, of course, needed huge amounts of coal. So coal mining was driven by the railways. The railways drove the increase in population to provide freight for their trades that needed the, the coal. And so it was a a feedback system that worked quite successfully. Where, did the, where, did, where were the coal mines? Were there any near you or was it all freighted in? Yes, um, that Alberta is just on the edge, or at least the western part of the province, is next to the Rocky Mountains. In fact, part of the, the Rocky Mountains fall within the province. Most of them are in British Columbia. Um, and there's a lot of coal uh, in the, the mountains and the area of the foothills and Alberta generally. Huge coal reserves. Uh, the first coal was mined in 
Alberta, uh, not too close to the mountains actually, in about the early 1860s uh, to provide coal for heating. Uh, then coal was discovered uh, in the Rocky Mountains in several spots. Uh-huh. And of course, for it to be useful, it had to be convenient to the railway. And so the coal mines that developed were those that could gain access to uh, the first railway, which went through uh, Calgary, uh, through the Kicking Horse Pass. And then later on, uh, they built a railway to the north, uh-huh. which is called the Yellowhead Pass, which goes through uh, Edmonton and then through the Rockies at Jasper. Um, and in all of these areas, they found coal. The coal near Calgary uh, was very high quality, uh, so ideal for you know almost any purpose. Um, and a coal mine grew up at a, a town called Canmore. And I actually did a bit of homework. I didn't know this. Uh, Canmore is from a Scottish dialect that means big head. And it was uh-huh. named after King Morgan III of Scotland, who was known as the Big Head. <laughs> Most of Western Canada was, na- uh, parts of it anyway, were named by Scots. And I think they were running low on names at that point. Anyway, Canmore had a coal mine that functioned until the 1970s when it finally closed and um, used my by grad- the sorry used by the used by the railways most yes and my grandfather set up uh, when he'd moved to western canada uh not quite sure what he did originally but he decided that the future was coal and he set up a company wilson coal and coke to provide coal for heating, domestic heating, businesses, and that sort of thing. And he was very successful at it. Um, He had an area, if you think around Finsbury Park, uh, tube station, most of the area that is from the tube station to Rowan's, up to the World's End pub, that sort of block. Um, well, my grandfather's coal yard was bigger than rough, bigger than that, or roughly the same size. And he, it was just on the railway. The trains would come dump the coal. Uh, right, so we had several, would, several acres then, or acres. yeah, yeah, it was a big site, um, and. Um, he had various offices. It had all disappeared by the time I became sort of sentient. But there were a couple of office, old wooden office buildings that were still there. And I explored those and found a gas analysis apparatus uh, that you could carry around. And presumably they to show that the coal was of good quality, they would do an analysis of what the what you got when you burned it. 
So you get carbon dioxide, of course, predominantly, but you could also get hydrogen sulfide and con uh, contaminating materials. And so, so the gas analysis kit seemed to be part of the uh, selling coal. I don't know. If, I, I never asked him about it, but I did find this this box of decayed rubber tubing and bits of glassware. Just um, raise your uh, your passion for uh, science, because yes. what I didn't say in the introduction is that you uh, that your career was as a biochemist. Yes, and uh, uh, and so gas analysis would be right up your street. Yes, it was um, an interesting piece of apparatus. But um, in the, the days when my grandfather was selling coal, and coke was used, as there was no steel smelting in Western Canada, uh, but it was used for blacksmithing. And it was also a high quality fuel. Uh, if people didn't want too much fume and what have you in a hotter fire they would use coke so posher people would have coke for their fires rather than coal oh so it's more expensive yeah All right. okay. um, so is that so what's what's the difference because you think about coal and you think well it's this black stuff that gets everything really dirty and you burn it is, is coke essentially the same thing except for slightly denser or, or well what they do is they to make coke you enclose the coal in a metal vessel and then you heat it and the heating drives off the volatiles uh, the hydrocarbons that produce um, uh, well you know ultimately would be oil and gas right. uh, and you drive all of this out of the coal yeah. leaving the, the carbon so coke is a much purer form of carbon and it burns at a higher temperature and with a cleaner flame so if you have a coke fire uh, you have a better chance of being able to smelt iron uh, Right. Because it's easy to get a hot fire. Uh, sometimes it's actually after you've turned it into coke, they may crush it and form it into little briquettes using a bit of clay as a binder. Um, but it was a, a more speciality fuel. Um, and of course, correspondingly cost more. Uh, the distillate from the production of coke was usually just vented into the atmosphere but if you condensed it you could get some light hydrocarbons uh, that you could probably use industrially or burn them as lamp oil or something i'm not aware that it was ever much done so essentially uh, it was just about that sort of stuff a lot of that stuff would be uh, well the methane for sure would be some big global warming Global oh, yeah. gas. Yeah. But, um, they so how did you? Sorry, how did your grandfather get into the coal industry, the coal business? Is it basically was it basically just this massively profitable operation? If you can get into it, then you grab the chance with both hands, and and you're on the gravy train. 
probably I've never found out uh, I believe that when he he was born in Ontario from a family that had been living near the American border um, since way before Canada formed yeah. I think they the, they emigrated there from Ireland sometime in the 1700s right uh, and his family had produced generations of, me of medical doctors uh, until my grandfather and for some reason or the other my grandfather didn't fancy an academic life uh, and he went west you know as they said go west young man I, he picked up a bride before they went west um, okay. from a rather posh family and um, they ended become a doctor no doubt well they ended up in Calgary and I believe he started speculating in property he probably had a bit of money to do initial investment but he was a very able businessman and a very clever man uh, positively evil but definitely a clever man and um, he recognized that uh, coal was going to be a, a useful thing to have, make money on yeah. and uh, so he invested in it and uh, developed Wilson Coal and Coke and it was quite successful with branches in other cities in the province um, and so how, did, so how did he, how many, how many, was it, was it mainly a business thing or was it mainly a domestic thing or was it just anybody who wanted it? Anybody who wanted it. Um, I think he, he probably, so for domestic use, people would have the coal delivered. And so there was probably a middleman uh, who would buy the coal from my grandfather and deliver it to individual houses whereas companies would buy direct from him yeah and a story that i told you before that was rather amusing that when the uh, one of the companies that bought coal from him a dutch family who had set up glass houses now the canadian winters are really extreme even in calgary which is a bit milder than further north but periods of minus 20 degrees Celsius yeah. for extended periods are normal in the winter and a lot of snow as well. And um, so, of course, the, the greenhouses used a lot of heating. And um, <laughs> the Dutch family, uh, they were called Brink, uh, Brink Brothers. And then, of course, when the Great Depression happened, people stopped buying flowers and buying fresh lettuces and everything else because they didn't have any money. Right. And the Brink brothers were in severe trouble because they couldn't afford to pay my grandfather for his coal. And my grandfather, rather than foreclosing on them, yeah. uh, said, right, well, things are going to get better one day. Yeah. So when you can afford to pay me, pay me. Until then, you have as much coal as you need. So he put. He's a, he's a nice. He's a nice guy. I've heard you said before you were you were saying that he's an evil chap. But 
he, or, he, no, but he recognised that these guys were going to be successful. And sure enough, they were. And when the depression was over, they went from strength to strength and built more and more glass houses. They paid off their debts to him. Um, he gained a lot of goodwill. Right, okay. uh, and they supplied bedding plants uh, to him free of charge until he died. <laughs> uh, so I, I didn't realize you had to pay for plants until uh, you know, after he died. <laughs> You know, I thought you just rang up the uh, Brink brothers and they would bring the plants to you. Um, so Brink brothers had a lot of greenhouses? Yeah, acres. And they heated them all the way through winter, all the way through this, when it was minus 20 yep. outside, they would keep these greenhouses going. Yep. And single glaze greenhouses as well. <laughs> you know, it's a really expensive thing. Insanely inefficient as well. Oh, yeah. But the coal um, was, the coal, but, the coal was expensive. It was, it wasn't. Well, coal was cheap. That they didn't realize. Well, that, you know, you could do it. And in a normal ec economy, uh, it wasn't a problem. But then when everything went pear-shaped with the Great Depression, then it was. And in fact, my grandfather was in financial trouble at one point. Again, the details uh, I never did find out. But um, the family were kept going in part by my grandmother, uh, who was a pianist. And she uh, gave piano lessons. And um, people would pay for piano lessons uh, by barter. So you could get half an hour uh, piano tuition for a dozen eggs. And if you wanted an hour, I think it was a whole chicken. <laughs> and so she kept, kept the food on the table uh, simply by teaching piano. And that, you know, reduced the family's bills. Um, the, this Great Depression was the same Great Depression that they had in America, presumably. Yeah. In the, and the, after the massive stock market crash in 1929 yes. and the whole of the 30s before the Second World War yeah. was just this miserable time with nothing happening and no, no, nothing happened. The, the economy was just flat. Yeah. And the other thing that happened was they had the, the great drought in the Dust Bowl years when the topsoil, particularly in the United States, just blew away. Yeah. And this was less of a problem in Canada, but the tr certainly there was a massive failure of agriculture. Yeah. Uh, so, it, you know, it, it was a bad time. Yeah. But uh, things got better. And when things started to get better, one of the things that was becoming of interest was they'd found natural gas fairly close to Calgary. In right. fact, it had been known for some time, the area called Turner, uh, Turner Valley. And um, by the 1920s, yeah. uh, Turner Valley was producing both natural gas and oil. And my grandfather realized that 
people weren't going to want to heat their houses with coal because it was going to be so easy to pipe gas in. Mm -hmm. And so he quietly slowed down his selling of coal and coke and set up a company called Wilson Electric, which handled gas and electrical appliances. Uh, initially, he was selling gas appliances, uh, including uh, gas-operated refrigerators, uh, which you can still buy. Mm -hmm. uh, they're probably not very common these days, but uh, when the electricity supply is not reliable uh, and gas supply is better, uh, it was you know, quite a good option. And yeah. my grandfather set, set up the Wilson Electric and he used the same premises for his warehouses as he'd used to store coal. Because again, they were right on the railway, so he could impl uh, import white goods, cookers and refrigerators and later televisions and what have you. Um, Sounds like a, a dire combination there, having the coal on one side of the warehouse and white <laughs> goods on the other side. Yes, but it, it, it worked. And um, he then opened a, bought a building right in the center of the city uh, for his offices, um, a piece of prime real estate. And again, he had, he was distributing white goods for most of the Canadian prairies, very successful. Um, and I remember they were offered an early microwave oven. And this was really a novelty. It cost an enormous amount of money. Wow. What, what year would that have been? Oh, God, it would have been probably in the 50s. It was around about, around about the time television came into Western Canada. And it was about the size of a washing machine. <laughs> and wow. instead of the round window we have on a washing machine, there was a small square window. Uh, and you open this up. And there was a little space about that big that was sufficient to put a hot dog in or two or three hot dogs. And you could cook your hot dogs in this microwave oven. And um, it was, you know, a huge piece of kit, weighed the earth, but it did cook hot dogs. My grandfather said, it'll never catch on. <laughs> <laughs> and for uh, for quite a while he was right but eventually they made microwave ovens that are much more convenient yeah we got uh i remember as a child my parents getting a microwave oven and uh we tried various or they tried out various cooking various things in the microwave oven just to experiment with it and the one that i rem remember most was the egg <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not yes. sure whether the I'm not sure whether the instruction said don't cook eggs in this oven, but it might have done. And my dad just thought, well, let's see what happens. Happens, yes. And of course, it exploded. <laughs> yeah, which I thought was great fun.
Yes, and it's devilish to clear out afterwards. <laughs> uh, yeah, but um, uh, my grandfather's business um, eventually failed um, through competition and through his growing old and poorly and his son who took over the the business uh was a frightfully nice guy an uncle, had, an uncle my uncle yes and he had very little competence in business uh, and the business was largely kept going by my father who had married the boss's daughter it must be said my father was an accountant and ran the finances of the company and after my grandfather sort of faded from the picture uh, my father kept the company afloat but of course he wasn't the managing director uh, and when my father died the company just went bankrupt because the banks didn't trust uh, my uncle. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, so, you know, we didn't inherit a vast <laughs> amount of money. <laughs> uh, but it was an interesting saga of how uh, capitalism worked in the Wild West. And my grandfather was a, a most impressive man. Uh, a very practical man. He didn't like to waste money. When he realized that I was interested in science and seriously interested in science, he was prepared to invest in apparatus. So I had a basement laboratory. Um, wow. And, but it took quite a while before he decided that somebody was serious and so was worth spending a bit of money on. Yeah. He'd also been keen on photography and he took and developed his own uh, black and white pictures. Uh, and then he branched out into Cinefilm and he had one of the first Kodak 16 millimeter cine cameras in Western Canada. And he took pictures of everything. And including the coal mines at Canmore, Alberta. And also pictures of family when my mother was just a, a little girl. Um, the family going camping in in the foothills and on the Rocky Mountains up towards Banff. And um, this was before there was actually a metalled road between Calgary and Banff. The only road was a couple of ruts in the ground, but a Model T could just about make it. But most people would ride horses to get there. But my grandfather used his Model T and we have these old cine films uh, in black and white of uh, camping, of the early coal mines at Canmore with pit ponies. Uh, seemed quite well cared for. Did you get uh, any of them transferred onto, onto video? Uh, 
No. When I, when my grandfather died, there was this huge amount of uh, cine film. Most of it, of course, was when he branched out into color. Then it tended to be family films of children, you know, endless, very boring family films. Um, yeah. But the uh, the interesting historical ones uh, were deposited with the uh, Glenbow Museum in Calgary, and are part of the historical record there. Oh right, okay. So I, in fact, I looked at their website, but um, you have to subscribe to actually get at the full index of what they've got. They also had my mother's bridal dress. <laughs> um, because my mother's bridal dress um, incorporated lace that had come from her mother's family in Eastern Canada, the ones I described as posh, and um, it had gone back a very long time. I don't know how old it was, but it was of historical interest and so the museum has got my mother's bridal gown as well um great history lesson well, the, uh, have you been back there at all very rarely um i'm not an outdoors person the scenery is beautiful but a little goes a long way both of my parents were into winter sports. They skied, they snowshoed, they skated. My father played hockey. They played tennis. My father played football. You name it, they did it. They produced two academic children who had no interest whatsoever in <laughs> They were very frustrated. Um, uh, so, yeah. and most of the relatives I have uh, fell out of touch with uh, or died off. Um, so I now have two cousins extant, yeah. uh, one of whom has dementia so badly that she might as well be dead. And the other is still functioning about my age. Um, yeah. And, you know, we exchange emails, but I haven't been back to Canada since 1986. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's largely remote control. Yeah. But um, going back to the sort of the, the attitude towards energy, uh, that in the days when my grandfather was selling coal, the, it was really cheap. And so you didn't, didn't worry about insulating your house. And I was brought up in a house that was built by my grandfather, which was similar to lots of other houses. It was wood frame construction with a commodious basement, which was a good idea. Um, what, what, I don't no, yeah, what I don't understand about, about that is that I mean, in my experience, when you have a badly insulated house, a bit like the one I'm living in, when you turn the heating off, then you immediately get cold. Yeah, and, you just uh, don't turn the heating off. Yeah, but if you want to be warm again, you have to go and turn it on again. <laughs> I always thought that 
it just doesn't make any sense not to insulate because you want to stay warm and uh okay so you could theoretically keep the heating running all the time but then again you've got to go out to the cold to the coal uh what are they called these the coal um, yard the, the the coal was actually kept in the cellar right so you've got to go down to the cellar get a whole bunch of coal and chuck it on the fire yeah uh, who wants to do that why why did you why do you make more work for yourself when you you could with a bit of insulation yeah. i don't know that they they did heat the house virtually continuously oh they did uh, that anyway during the winter um i mean i could see that somebody might invent some sort of automatic uh some sort of conveyor belt which produces a continual conveyor belt of coal that drops into the oven the, there was there was a some sort of automatic hopper so the 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 furnace would be uh kept up you had to fill the hopper once a day so you know once you you'd filled the hopper for the day then it was automatically fed into the furnace ah, i don't okay. know how i don't know what mechanism okay then i'm putting my modern memories of my uh well not they're not that modern but i'm putting my memories of the coal fire that we used to have in my house when when i was a kid and it was just because it was just a hearth in under yeah. a, a fireplace and and really it wasn't for heating the house much i mean it, it heated the heated the room that you're in but you it was so much fuss you had to go and get the coal everything would get dirty you'd have to chuck it on the fire and then afterwards you'd have to clean all the ash out and that was twice as dirty again yeah you carry it all out and it was just untold hassle to actually look after that so you'd be sitting there getting a bit cold and thinking you know why is this stupid central heating not working shall we put the fire on and half of the time you go no i can't be bothered it's just so much hassle but i presume if you have some sort of furnace with some sort of uh, yeah that automated mechanism that keeps it going then yeah much yeah, better was, way of doing it it was an impressive gadget it was about the a cylinder maybe five foot in diameter and it stood just about my height uh in the basement and it drove hot water for the radiators and every room had a old cast iron radiator yeah. And, you know, I can never remember being cold uh, when I was young. Oh, I see. The system just worked a treat. Now, when I knew it, it had been converted to gas with the original boiler was still there. But where the coal feed had been put in, there was, they'd inserted a huge gas burner oh right the burner was about that diameter yeah uh and all sorts of complicated devices outside to control the flow of gas and the whole thing was driven by thermostats it was very inefficient but it certainly worked and so you didn't actually you, you didn't actually have your house heated by coal at that no the coal had already been converted over the gas it had been converted because again when my grandfather decided something was on the way out you know he he did have to have the the most up-to-date 
they, you know, if he these days he'd have the latest iPhone, right? Uh, okay. And so he he converted quite early, and yeah. he it was a very sophisticated conversion, whereas my father's mother had a similar sized house, uh, with a similar sized uh, furnace, uh, but there the conversion was very cheap, and all you did was. Um, turn on a big gas valve but that diameter, uh, scrunch up a bit of newspaper and light it with a match and throw it in the door of the furnace, close the door and hope that it didn't blow up. <laughs> and uh, this heated, this was a hot air system and it provided hot air continuously through the winter. Right. And it had originally of course been fired by coal as well. Uh -huh. And the size of the basements uh, was driven by the necessity of being able to store sufficient coal for the winter. Right. Because you couldn't rely on regular deliveries, because when the snow was six or eight feet deep, it was, there would be periods when it was very difficult to get vehicles around. And in the days when they were horse-drawn, um, damn near impossible. Didn't stand a chance, right, yeah. And um, I, I can remember when milk deliveries were done by uh, horse and cart. And then, you know, you just, in cold weather, you just didn't get your milk if there was too much snow. Um, uh, of course, they would... <laughs> Of course, they would be going all winter. Yeah. Presumably from a dairy where all the cows are inside, heated by coal. Yes, heated, heated by, by coal, coal. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, but um, but th then when gas came in, it was absolutely cheap. And petrol was very cheap. It still is by comparison with Europe. Yeah. And so there was never any reason for people to put in insulation yeah. and you know they knew about insulation and our house actually had a little bit of loft insulation a couple of barrow loads of wood shavings had been dumped between the rafters up in the attic you know about a layer less right. than an inch of wood shavings uh, and that was just a token so the other thing about the other thing, obviously, if your boiler breaks down or your furnace breaks down in Canada and it's minus 20 outside and you've got no insulation in the house, presumably within two to three hours, it'll be minus 20 indoors as well. It'll be bloody cold, yes. So, so what did you do? What would you do if that happened? Where did I don't know. Uh, I think um, there were, we did have a fireplace so that you could heat the, the sitting room. The fire was only used on sort of feast days, but it was it was a workable fireplace. So there was one additional source of heat. Right. And of course, when I was young, uh, things had been converted to gas, and you could turn on the gas oven yeah. and open the the door and warm the kitchen that way. Right. Uh, but I think basically they worked upon the basis that almost anything in a simple system could be quickly fixed. Right, makes sense. And I, I 
I simply don't ever recall anybody complaining about a central heating breakdown in the winter. Uh -huh. It must have happened, but it wasn't the sort of trauma that it is here. <laughs> um, yeah, you get the uh, people upstairs have been complaining actually because their boiler broke down for six weeks. They they had to <laughs> because the landlord is absolutely rubbish. Yeah, that no, it, it was. It's a different sort of attitude, yeah. and I think it's the attitude that underlies quite a lot of North American attitudes still, that you I just think. had an endless supply. Right. Hugh, can you hear? I can hear a trumpet, yes. I can hear a trumpet too. <laughs> I've told him I'm doing a podcast, but I don't care. <laughs> um, well, it adds a bit of amusement. <laughs> what I was going to what I was going to do is at some point was try to segue in talking about houses into your house in in uh, Finsbury Park there. So do you have an old cellar that was once a coal cellar? Yes. Um, uh, that, and of course we have fireplaces in every room. Yeah. Um, the house was built in 1875. Um, and we found the remains of the the kitchen had its own chimney even uh, as all of these houses had okay. and we found the remains the foundation of the uh, the huge copper they used to heat water in oh, uh, right, okay. just the, the the base of it not the actual vessel itself yeah. uh, and so the the kitchen would have been coal-fired as well so that um, would be the, the primeval boiler, essentially. Yeah. Just, just with a coal fire underneath it. Yeah. Right. So and how many chimneys how many chimneys do you actually have then? Presumably uh, you counted them at the top of the house. Yeah, uh, they're all in the garden now growing plants. Uh, <laughs> so let's see, we've got one, two, three, four, five, six. The main chimney had six chimney pots for this side of this uh, our house. Right. And then the rear chimney for the kitchen had two chimney pots. Right, okay. Um, and when the house was built, um, the assumption was you had a maid. Uh, and we looked at the census for uh, 1881 and for Wilberforce Road virtually every house had a servant but by the next census many houses had lost their servants so uh, people were having to do their own uh, uh, stoking of the fires rather than having the maid do it but the original design was the idea the maid would do it all yeah uh, that's now changed into uh, the, the the maid's room becomes an au pair room and the au pair looks after the kids. And yes. All of the coal has been replaced with central heating. Yeah. <laughs> I can imagine that. Um, do you, did you do a, uh, a retrofit? Did you do any sort of, um, have you done any sort of work on the place to get the 
uh, increase the insulation, um, reduce the reduce the heating bills. We did, uh, but as soon as we moved in, uh, we had to replace the central heating uh, boiler, um, and it was. It was a very unsatisfactory installation as the house had been divided into bed sits and so there were independent central heating systems uh, all cobbled together. We found 17 separate uh, consumer units for the electricity supply. Uh, the, the house had been converted back into a single family house uh, by the people we bought it from yeah. Uh, but we found the remains. There were kitchens on every landing. Right. You find the holes for the pipes and the drains and what have you. Uh, there was an outdoor toilet as well as an inside toilet. Um, <laughs> That's still um, going. The outdoor toilet is now a garden shed. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but. Um, so it's fairly typical of all London houses, basically. Yeah. They are just a disaster in terms of um, efficiency and insulation. Yeah. And they're made to be, made to be, I think the term is porous, made to be breezy. So yeah. the, uh, the air has got to circulate so that you don't start getting damp and um, all of this kind of, dry rot and wet rot yeah. and, um, and mould creeping up the walls. <laughs> yeah, you've got to have air bricks to let air into the cellar. Yeah. Uh, but after we uh, dealt with the central heating uh, initially, we had um, double glazed windows put in at the back of the house. Um, and we, there was some loft insulation in place uh, but had been very poorly mounted. They just sort of thrown the rolls about at random. Uh, and so I spent happy hours up in the loft, uh, putting the insulation properly between the rafters and then adding uh, another layer. So the, the loft has uh, about as much loft insulation as it's possible to get. Um, then we, you know, did things like ceiling, trying to reduce the drafts around the doors. Uh, the front windows were replaced with double glazed sash units. Uh, so we've done all of the the easy things in terms of making it more energy efficient. Uh, yeah. And we really... You know, did, you, one, did you listen to the podcast that yes. uh, I made with Kate, Kate Calvin? Yes, it was fascinating. She she just basically they went to town and yeah. did the whole lot. That I, I'd love to be able to uh, do as much as she did, but now we're so thoroughly settled in the house and operating on pension budget, uh, yeah. I, it's not really feasible. Uh, we did. Um, I rebuilt the central heating system after. A, we suffered from the original system with a new boiler and it was still not very good. Yeah. So I rebuilt the system and had a, 
a decent Worcester Bosch boiler installed that was much, much more efficient than the one that had been fitted. Yeah. And that served us for 16 years and we replaced it with a more efficient one. Um, and it did make a significant savings to the gas bills. Right. Uh, and then, um, well, I mean, I'd, the, yeah, the, um, the government is probably going to have to get everybody to dump their gas boilers. I, I can't really see any way around this. There is no. talk about hydrogen and mixing hydrogen and methane in the, yeah. in, in the, in the gas. I assume because they because they've done this conversion, they converted from what was it from? They converted from land gas to North Sea gas. Back it in was the town gas. Town gas. They yeah. figure they can do it again with hydrogen, maybe. But yeah. that's still not going to be. It's not a be the real, It's not really the real deal, is it? And it's going to be bloody expensive. That I've the latest Wooster Bosch boilers claim to be hydrogen friendly that if there ever is a conversion to hydrogen or a mixed methane hydrogen fuel uh, they claim that the boiler won't have to be replaced really um probably they've just they'd have to tweak the adjustments certainly well, because, sorry when when was this that you that you installed this one well the present one uh was about 11 years ago but I've been looking at the newer boilers. Those are the ones that are hydrogen compatible. Oh, I see. So the one you've got isn't. No. Right. And when I spoke to the serviceman doing the annual service, I said, I'm thinking of replacing this beast. And he said, well, his advice would be not to, because there might be grants in the future. Yeah. And at 10 or 11 years old, the boiler was going to be uh, maintained by Bosch uh, for an indefinite period into the future. Yeah. So there was no worry about not being able to get parts. Yeah. Uh, so I put on the back burner, as it were, uh, <laughs> replacing the boiler. Right. But I, I dislike the idea of an in inefficient boiler. Uh, this one is certainly more efficient than the ones that went before. Um, we think each... that the boiler that we've got is about 25 years old. Yeah. And of course, the landlord isn't going to replace it. No. He didn't even want to replace it after Islington Council offered him essentially about 75% of the costs. God. Is it still, but... still, couldn't, still couldn't be bothered, basically. Yeah. But it just, it's a false economy. Um, I'm a bit skeptical about um, uh, hydrogen as a fuel. I'd really want to see a lot of tests because hydrogen is very uh, has a very high diffusion co uh, constant, yeah. and it will diffuse more rapidly through tiny little gaps that methane won't. And hydrogen is, uh, as is methane, but very explosive, and. Um, yeah. I, I'm a bit worried about uh, the safety risk. Um, I did read. I did read up on this, um, and uh, I was 
talking to some guy and he was basically saying, well, the, the thing about hydrogen is that because it disperses so well, it won't actually yeah. pool. It, yes, it that's won't true. Collect in a, it won't collect in a, a sort of a Zeppelin-sized mm. bubble and then explode disastrously yeah. like the Hindenburg did. Yes. Um, because, that, I mean, that's every time you talk about hydrogen with most people is they envisage the, uh, the Hindenburg Zeppelin going up in flames. Yeah. And uh, so I, I really don't know. But I do see that I, I am a bit skeptical that it, that it can be brought in in time to meet the climate targets that, that yes. everybody, wants to, everybody wants to hit. Because and the other... There is no hydrogen out there being produced, just small amounts yeah. from prototype prototype uh, hydrogen hydrogen generators um, running mostly running off fossil fuels so they're generating it using fossil yes. fuels rather yeah. and so they don't even have the wind farms or the solar solar farms available to produce the hydrogen at the power plants even if they could do that which they can't anyway so it's yeah. all a bit it's all a bit um it's just a vision at the moment yeah and, uh, so if you're going to replace people with boilers, then at the moment you would probably go, you would have to go for electric boilers. And yeah. then the problem with that is that electricity is far more expensive per kilowatt hour than gas. You get a lot more bang for your buck. Yeah. Talking about bangs again with, with gas. I mean, you know, I notice it when you look at your, your heating bill. We're, we yeah. have relatively, relatively cheap bills because we have a gas boiler. Yeah, and people who have electric boilers are going to be paying more. So yeah, it's a fraught, fraught situation, and who knows what's going to happen. It's uh, yeah, which um, is why I I keep thinking I keep banging on about this the carbon currency. If you had a carbon currency where it all nobody has to make any decisions about it at a high level because essentially it would just show in yeah. the carbon price on whatever it is. So it just show that that is the way to do it right now. If you want to do it right now, then you just look at the carbon price. Yeah. But anyway, that's um, that's a digression. The uh, well. what I um, what I was going to say is basically we we've, we've got to the um got to the, coming up to the hour, so I wanted to start um start concluding. Um, and just say well, thank you very much for all of those all of those historical insights. My camera is not cutting out on me. Yes, it was. And um, the uh, um, I'll I'll put this all together and um, basically I'll hopefully get a really good podcast out of it. I don't think I have to do very much to it, oh. apart from just make sure that the trumpet wasn't too loud in the background there. No, I think <laughs> it was acceptable. Um, I, I, I think the, the message I, I'd be driving home is just the attitude that people have being brought up in an area with apparently infinite resources, low prices for fuels. You have a, a very different mindset. And the other point that I didn't make uh, is that fossil fuels are a really major part of the Canadian economy. And even now, uh, right? Even now. And yeah. Alberta is doing a huge amount of environmental damage by extracting 
oil from the tar sands in Alberta. Yeah. Because extracting the oil is extremely difficult, uh, very polluting, and is only feasible when the oil price is high. Yeah. And the other thing I noticed is that Canada, for 50 years, had a legislative uh, moratorium on having open pit coal mining. So, you know, you can't just dig up a huge section of land and dig out the coal. Uh, you have to mine it properly if you're going to mine it at all, which, of course, is much more expensive. And they've done away with that. They've reversed it in the past year. So you can now, and there's a site in the, the prairies where uh, coal is relatively accessible if they just clear away the topsoil. And so you'll have this great crater forming so they can get vast amounts of coal out. But I, isn't tar sands the same thing? Isn't the operation for tar sands is that you just clear the landscape? and then process all of the all of the sands to get the yeah the fossil fuel up isn't that the same process right uh, it's not it's not it's not it's more elaborate because if you're doing an open uh, pit mine for coal you just have to clear away the topsoil and then dig out the coal whereas with the tar sands you have to get to the tar sand layer which is not very deep and then you've got to dig it out but then your tar sand, which is really just black, horrible, smelly sand, has to go into vast uh, retorts and yeah. the oil has to be forced out uh, by steam and high temperature and God only knows what else. It, it, so it's a... You know, open pit mining is bad enough, but tar sands is even worse because it's so polluting after you've got the stuff out. So they have this, and, and of course tar sands affects huge areas as well. I've seen the aerial photographs. Yeah. It was just that the, um, the legislative restrictions on open pit coal mining uh, were purely coal. Yeah, well, I think it, was, it might have been right. mining in general, but probably coal. Yeah. Uh, and now, of course, as energy prices going up, and uh, uh, they they've done away with it. Yeah. So you know, a really retrograde a step, I thought. Um, well, Justin Trudeau, the Canadian Prime Minister, has got. Um, enjoys this really um it's really difficult position of trying to be green and say oh yes for the paris agreement we're going to do this that and the other and uh but then all of the canadian states just go off and do these tar sands and uh open these open pit coal mines mm. and <laughs> it but really i really don't know looking from the outside i've got really no idea whether canada is which direction is heading at all? You just, I just can't tell. I think it's, um, and you know, I don't follow it particularly, but I think it's, it's heading towards continued use of fossil fuels. Yeah. I think it's making as many noises because of course, the Canadians on the whole, I think if you talk to individual Canadians, they'll be as keen as anybody 
on reducing fossil fuel use. Uh, but the Canadian economy is really hooked on it. Right. And so many jobs. Because when you look at Canada, yeah. you know, aside from fossil fuels and mining and hydroelectric electricity and producing vast amounts of wheat, um, most of the country isn't really good for very much except looking at. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's a narrow band yeah. where you can grow wheat. Um, but when you go too far north, there's not a sufficient warm period for the wheat to ripen. Right. Uh, so despite new wheat varieties and in course warming, which is moving the, uh, the, the warm area further north. But even so, there's a big hunk of Canada which re doesn't really have any function yeah. except as land. Just a huge wilderness. Just a huge wilderness, which yeah. is the way I think most of us feel it should stay. Yeah. And go and look at it and enjoy it. Yeah. But um, that doesn't provide jobs for Canadians. Uh, so the government are really in a sticky position. Um, yeah, the, um, what about the idea of a massive re renewable energy push, getting solar farms, wind farms, hydropower, geothermal even, there must be loads of geothermal. Yes, yeah, I think, you know, if they got their act together, they could. Uh, the problem is that it's a federal system and the provinces have enormous uh, powers yeah. and the federal government can't really influence a lot of areas and the western particularly alberta uh, is so hooked on fossil fuels they're going to make it difficult to invest in say geothermal right where you know there's lots of uh, relatively easily accessible uh, hot springs in Banff, you could quite easily do quite, extract a lot of heat up there. Uh, but again, uh, granted it's a natural, national park, so you've, there are limits on that anyway. But Alberta would, is really hooked on, on oil and gas. It is uh, a difficult one, but you yeah. look at Nor Norway, uh, maybe I don't know, but yeah, it's it's, a, it's the basically it's the old chestnut of the inertia behind the fossil fuel industry, and not only the inertia but the power of the big companies. That the yeah, the money, the money, and Imperial Oil more or less controlled northern Alberta or big hunks of it. And look at going back to coal mining, the towns that were doing coal mining were actually owned by the coal companies. Right. All the and property, yeah. All the property, oh. they were the landlords, they ran the shops, everything. Um, right. So it's really difficult to cut that sort of tie. Yeah. Uh, and they they use their financial power. Use and abuse, definitely. Yeah. Look, Hugh, we've done 
we've done, I think we've gone over 60 minutes. This is excellent. Thank you very much. Well, I'm sure you'll have a lot of editing to do. At this point, oh, the editing is way too much. <laughs> way too easy to make a complete hash of it and uh, create much more work than it was actually worth. So I'm not going to edit it. And I don't think there's much need to, apart from maybe the trumpet. I'll have a listen to that again. <laughs> so thank you very much, Hugh. And right, well, uh, well, Thanks for listening. It's always nice to reminisce. Yes. Excellent. Thank you very much. Right. My name is Adam Hardy, and this is the Carbon Watchdog podcast. All of the website content and uh, the podcasts are free. If you like what Carbon Watchdog is doing, then please head over to patreon.com using the link on the website and support me there. Thank you very much for listening and I hope you'll tune into the next one. Bye.